for the band. Oh, good. How many first-year students do we have in here? Would you stand up? First-year students, like you've come here for first year. Oh, that's awesome. How many second-year students do we have in here? Here for second year. Oh, that's awesome. How many of you are family members of first-year students? You've come here to kind of get your kids all your sons and daughters. Stand up for just a minute. Let's bless them. Yes. Bless you guys. Wow. It's a good evening. It's a good get drunk evening. <laughs> I remember we used to sing those songs. People just get crazy. <laughs> now we don't need songs to get crazy. We're just always crazy. Sir, you're in blue. Would you stand up right there in your blue shirt? Yeah, you, yeah. What's your name? James, why are you standing? <laughs> I saw the Lord put the word courage over you. And I, I believe there's just a courageous mantle um, on you right now. And the, you know, Proverbs says the righteous are as bold as a lion, but wicked people run when there's no one chasing them. And I feel like the Lord has called you to be a Joshua uh, to this generation. I feel like there's just a mantle on you to, br to break through. Isaiah 62 says, go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, remove the stones, um, and cast up a highway and say to the daughter of Zion, here comes your salvation. And I feel like there's a breaker anointing on you. Like you're a, you have a you bulldozer kind of mantle on you. Uh, Ezekiel, the, uh, the commentary on Ezekiel is that he had a hard head and a soft heart. And uh, God said, I'm going to put you among, he said to Ezekiel, I'm going to put you among hard-headed people, but I'm going to make your head harder than their head. And uh, I, I see the Lord putting you among people who, they're like, you know, un, they're like American unreached people group. Are you from America? Okay, that's good. American, un, otherwise you'd have to move here to do this, right? American unreached people group, but the Lord's making your head, your, 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 your head harder than their head. You're... You're, uh, you're not just bold, you're persistent. You know, uh, Luke 18, you know the widow, the story of the widow and the, and the judge? It's in Luke 18. You should read your Bible. You really like it. It's a bestseller. The <laughs> story in there where the widow just doesn't give up. She just keeps going back to the judge, and the judge says, not because I like this widow, or not because I, uh, not because I like this widow, widow, and not because... Not because I believe she's right, but because she's persistent, I'm just going to give her what she wants. And so I think there's something about you not quitting that God wants to just bless in you. Why don't you just extend your hands to him? Lord, we just bless what you're doing in him right now in Jesus' name. We bless this persistent faith. And Lord, we just release the, a, a helmet of salvation that you'd put the helmet on his head, that you'd protect his thoughts, that you'd protect his sleep, that he'd be a man who sleeps in peace. Um, the, peace, the sleep of the righteous is peace. And so we just release the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that would guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's a good word. Um, why don't you grab a hand and let's pray. The single people, you should be praying right now that you grab the right hand of the person who really wants to date you. And you'll be, just be praying, Holy Spirit, 
guide me to sit at the right place with another single person who wants to take me on a date. So just squeeze their hand to the person next to you if you'd like to date them and squeeze back if it's a yes. You people watching by Bethel TV, you can do this right at home. There's somebody in your living room you'd like to date, you can just give them a hand also. Okay, let go of hands and let's pray now. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing in the room tonight. And we just pray for just an overflow of your presence. Toned down, but still good. Gabe leaned over, I'm going to finish my prayer in a minute, and said, it's good that people get drunk because they'll like your sermon no matter what you preach. And I noticed Bill got them drunk before you took the offering, and that's always good for the offering, too. Now I'll finish my prayer. So, Lord, I just bless what you're doing to your people tonight. In Jesus' name. More than drunk. In Jesus' name. Amen. I actually had a message. I'd worked on it for a few hours today. And tonight during worship, I, I just felt like the Lord said, we won't be doing that. And I'm like, okay, we won't be doing that. So what are we going to be doing? And I felt like I was supposed to teach on spiritual warfare tonight. And then, um, I can't remember. Oh, um, you were up here tonight and you were talking about people getting free um, when we preach tonight. So I want to read you just something I wrote in the middle of the night last night, actually most of it. Um, and then we're going to actually start it in the teaching. Faith is the catalyst to the impossible, the prognosis of the probable, and the potential of the powerful. When circumstances are dire and the people become downcast, faith, faith seeps through the pores of the pious and pounds the pillar of possibility into the heart of the hopeless. Doubt can delay it, naysayers can derail it, but persistent hope inevitably dictates the day, and the undoable, it dictates the day, the undoable feat, the unknowable task, and the unimaginable miracle. Men may cut you down, resist your purpose, and undermine your progress. But a faith-filled person is always the last one standing in the ring and the first one kneeling in obscurity. Never quit while you're behind because you were born to win. Winning's not a prediction or a possibility. It's a promise. That's a good word right there. So I want to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare tonight. I actually have a PhD in spiritual warfare. <laughs> you know, unfortunately... I have an education in things that nobody wants to go to school for. <laughs> Years ago, I've told this story many times, it's in at least one of my books, but I felt like, I, and this message I've shared probably many, many times, but I felt like I was specifically supposed to share it tonight. And um, Many years ago, when Kathy and I got married, the first year we got married, I think, it was, I think we were married about 11 or 12 months, Kathy was, got, got pregnant some way, and I guess it was going on year two because she was several months pregnant. And, and I got in the bathtub one night and uh, just taking a bath after work. And I went to get out of the bathtub. And right as I went to get out of the bathtub, I had this thought that I was going to die. Now, you know, how many of you know you're all terminal? <laughs> oh, some of you are like, not me. <laughs> how many of you know you're all going to die someday and you're all going to live eternally? They, you are planting this seed called your body, and you're going to live eternally. So I'm not talking about the realization that someday I'm going to die. I, I, I mean, we all live with that in our lives. 
I'm talking about, uh, the thought was like someone put a gun to my head and said, I'm going to kill you right now. And I suddenly, my heart started pounding uh, on my chest, and I started shaking, and I literally could not get, I didn't have the strength to get myself out of the bathtub. And I think Kathy was seven months pregnant, and I, I started yelling, I'm having a heart attack, I'm having a heart attack. And she came running in the bathroom, and, and uh, she tried to help me out of the tub, and I couldn't, couldn't get out of the tub. And a doctor, uh, our doctor was a friend of ours, so she called the doctor, and she started telling our doctor, you know, my, my husband, Chris, is having a heart attack. He's having a heart attack. And, you know, the doctor was trying to get her to calm down and asked her what my symptoms were, took my pulse, asked a bunch of questions. And about, you know, five, within five minutes, he said, he's not having a heart attack. He's having a panic attack. He's not going to die. It, it'll, it'll be okay. And it was a panic attack. And the challenge is, is I started having 20, 30, 40 of them a day to the place where I would have panic attacks, panic attacks at night, I would sweat the bed wet. Kathy would change the sheets at night because I'd sweat the entire bed wet. And that went on for three and a half years. 30, 40 panic attacks a night. As a matter of fact, we were, I was managing a, a shop in the, in the Bay Area, and it got so bad that I was working every day, but the nights were just horrible. And, and finally, I think we did that for about, I think it was about a year past. And uh, one day I just said, I can't do this anymore. We need to move we need to move someplace slow. And so um, we ended up, long story short, we ended up moving to a little town called Lewiston, which is just about 15 miles from Weaverville. There was 900 people in that town. 900 people moving from San Jose, California to Lewiston. I remember the first several nights that we, in fact, probably the first year we were in Lewiston. Have you ever, has, have you ever been someplace where it's so quiet, like there's no noise? You can, like, hear your heartbeat. It's like... We lived in this city. Like you couldn't hear your heartbeat if you had a stethoscope on, you know? And I remember this. I, and I, I thought that if, I, if we moved to someplace slow, that I would get well. But instead, I've got worse and worse. And uh, when the pace around me got slow, really slow, all it did was remind me of what was happening with the pace within me. And I would have uh, my imagination. I didn't feel like I had control over my thoughts and I, my imagination, I would imagine just doing crazy, terrible things and then, and then be totally panicked that it was, I was going to do something crazy. And, and I was taught, I was, I was a believer. I got saved at 18 and I actually had a radical conversion. Jesus came into my life and I wasn't a drug addict or, or a, I never drank, I never took drugs, I never smoked. Kathy's the only woman I've ever had sex with, which is good. I was just a normal sinner. <laughs> I can't write a book about my pre-Christian days because it, it would be too boring. But, uh, but I, I was just... I, but, and I, I, so I got saved in, a, in the Jesus movement. Some of you don't, are not even old enough to know what the Jesus movement was, but yes, I heard of a couple of old people. Woohoo! <laughs> we were the Jesus people. And um, I was taught that a Christian could be mentally ill, but a Christian could not be demonized. So I was actually taught out of my deliverance. Probably about a year after we got to Lewiston, demons started showing up in my room. I would actually see them, like with my natural eyes. I would see them, they would turn lights on and off, pictures would fall off the wall, our phone would ring, people, people doing, having seances would be on our phone, just crazy stuff would happen just spontaneously. 
and things just got worse and worse and worse. And one night, I, I, I couldn't sleep much at night, so I would get up, and so I wouldn't keep Kathy awake. I would go in our front room in Lewiston. We were, you know, we were elevation like almost 3,000 feet, so you didn't get much radio there. And obviously, this is before satellite radio or anything like that. So I would listen, turn the, the, our stereo on. You remember the stereo? <laughs> it, was, it was big. <laughs> and I would put my head against the speaker. I'd turn it down really low, and I'd put my head against the speaker just to get, just to get my mind thinking about something else. And so one night I was doing that. It was, it was wintertime in Lewiston. It was about two or three feet of snow on the ground, de- depth of winter, very cold. I had the... the wood heat going, and I was all shaky. I couldn't actually get a glass of water to my face unless I used two hands because I shook so bad. And so I was, had my head against the, the speaker, and this man, I, it was very staticky, probably 3 o'clock in the morning. So through the static, I heard this man say, quote, you know, 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind. Now, I knew the Bible pretty well, my mentor, the man who, my spiritual father, um, one of the things that he told me is, when I got, the day I got saved, he said, you pray every day, you read your Bible, you witness, and you worship. And so I was the guy, I knew the Bible pretty well, I knew that verse really well, but this man, through the static, I heard him say, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. I knew that verse really well, but this is what he said. He said, some of you think you're going insane, but actually, it's a spirit of insanity talking to you. And the way spirits talk to you is they give you their thoughts. And then he said this, not all your thoughts are your own. That's all I I heard. I turned the radio off. I'm laying on the floor. This This is, I'm probably on about year three, maybe three and a half years. I'm laying on the floor on my back, and I say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? What should I do? He said, tell the spirit of insanity and the spirit of fear to leave you. Now, I want to be delivered, but I don't want it to be that easy. <laughs> How many of you know, if you've, been, like, if you've been tormented for three years, you don't want to, like, a simple prayer to, like, you know, you want to, like, wave your hand, go dip in the river seven times, <laughs> run five miles, you, you know what I'm saying, fast for 40 days, and you'll have a day of freedom. That's what I'm thinking it's going to be. So I'm laying on my back, and I say, you spirit of fear and you spirit of insanity, leave me right now. And I felt... I didn't see anything, and by this time I'd seen many demonic spirits. I couldn't go in restaurants, I couldn't stay in hotels because of what I could see going on. But this time I didn't see anything, but it felt like, you ever wear one of those, uh, when you go to the dentist, they put these lead, what do they call it, like a lead vest on you when they take x-rays? It felt exactly like that, except for it was covering my entire body, and physically something got off of me that weighed like several pounds, it just got off of me. And as soon as it got off me, my mind immediately was restored. Immediately, like. My shaking stopped, all my symptoms went away. And for, I would even, like, for the next week, I would even try to think of the bad thought. You ever do that? I'm just testing it, like, I'm just gonna think about dying right now. I'm like, I'm thinking about it, and I have no issues. My mind was completely clear. A whole week. Now, three and a half years, I hadn't had an hour clear. I'm coming home from Weaverville. I worked in uh, Weaverville. It's about a 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive through the, through the mountains. Again, we're in wintertime, dark, no streetlights. And I'm, and I'm in my Jeep, and I'm, and I'm so happy. I'm singing, 
and I say out loud, I'm going to tell everyone that you're a loser. And this voice speaks to me and says, if you, speak, if you tell anyone what happened to you, I'll kill you. And all the symptoms all came back. I couldn't even drive. I pull over and I'm shaking in my Jeep and it's probably 7 o'clock at night, pitch dark. And I, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, how am I going to get home? And this little voice through my fear said, does the devil hate you? I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> he hates me. He said, well, why did... And he said, then why didn't he kill you when you were born again? I said, I don't know. He said, because he can't. It's all an illusion. The only power he has is the power you give him. And I sat on the road for probably another 20 minutes, and probably everyone who's ever had a panic attack knows it takes a few minutes for your, whew, your adrenaline to drain back in your body. And I drove home, and now I spent the next two years learning how to stay free. And I learned that angels and demons travel at the speed of thought. And that the devil did not control my thoughts. I controlled my thoughts. And I began to, just little by little, learn how to live in peace. What was really cool is, once I had peace for a week, I said to myself, if I could live in peace for a week, why couldn't I live in peace for two weeks? Once I had, once I had an, ex- an experience with peace, I'm like, all right, I'm the same person last week that I am this week, and therefore, if I can have a week of peace, I can have two weeks of peace. And I began to learn how to live in peace, and I began to learn how to actually do spiritual warfare. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things I've learned. I wrote a book on it called Spirit Wars. If, you really, if, if you're really troubled with uh, demonic spirits, I'd really encourage you to read that book. I, uh, I'll give it to you if you need it. Like I, I will, I'm not trying to make money on the book. If you have, know somebody that needs that book and you can't afford it, they can't afford it, glad, gladly give you the book. But tonight we're just going to touch on it a little bit. But... Um, uh, that book, I wrote that book about my experiences and how to be free. So the first thing I want to talk to you about tonight is how many know that our battle is not against flesh and blood? So here's the challenge. You know, when I was saved, I was taught that there was a black dog inside of me and a white dog inside of me. Come on, come on older people, tell us. This was a popular teaching. Raise your hand if you heard this teaching. There was a black dog inside of me and a white dog inside of me. The black dog was my old man and the white dog was my new man. And whatever dog I fed, that's the dog that controlled my life. And then one day I learned that when I received Jesus Christ and got baptized, that the old man, the old dog, the black dog was dead. How many understand that when you received Jesus, your old man died? The book of Romans, 47 times it says, you're dead, 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 you're crucified, you're dead, you're no longer you live, but Christ who lives in you. And what I'm getting at is this, is that you are not in a battle with your old man. See, part of the challenge was I, can, I, couldn't, actually, I couldn't actually win the war because I didn't engage the right enemy. See, I was taught Christians cannot be demonized, but they can be mentally ill. So I was in this war with the old man. How many know you go down to the graveyard, you dig up your old man, it's a metaphor. You dig, yeah. For all the people watching, we don't really do this. We don't grave suck. We don't go to graveyards and dig up people. It's a metaphor. But you go to, metaphorically speaking, you go, no, gosh, this is so bad, we have to explain this, you know? 
You go down to the graveyard, you dig up your old man, you kick him, you throw him down, you stab him, and you, know, and you, and you go back home and you have the same issues. Why? Because you didn't even engage the right enemy. How many know the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh? They're not of the flesh because our battle is not against flesh and blood. So, why don't you turn to just Romans 5 for a minute. We're going to just talk about this for a minute. This actually deserves, this actually has, I think, the longest chapter in the Spirit Wars book. So that's how important it is, but tonight we're just going to gloss over it. Now, many people have been taught in Romans 7, in fact, let me just skip up to Romans 7 for a minute so you understand what I'm actually addressing. In Romans 7, Paul talks about his struggle with sin. And he says this in verse 23, I see a different law working in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And Paul, in chapter 7, says that he's wrestling with sin and that he's a slave to sin and that he's a wretched man because sin has taken over his body. And I've heard lots of people teach over the years that if Paul struggled with sin, then certainly, if the great apostle Paul had a struggle with sin, then certainly we'll struggle with sin. But there's something about the book of Romans that you should know. Romans is one of those books that you should really read in succession. In other words, you should read chapter 1, then chapter 2, and chapter 3. If you're like me, I read a chapter or two in the morning, a chapter or two at night. And, and that's great, by the way. That's all fine. The fact that you just engage the Bible every day is great. But here's the point. If you happen to read chapter 6 on Monday and then happen to read chapter 7 on Tuesday, in other words, you disengage from chapter 5 and 6, and you happen to read chapter 7 like, hey, today my devotional is chapter 7. You think Paul's saying he is currently struggling with sin. But if you go back and read chapters, especially you can read the whole book of Romans, but if you go back and read chapter 5, 6, then 7, then chapter 8, you realize that Paul could not be talking about his current struggle with sin because of what he said in 5 and 6 and 8. Are you with me? How many know context dictates definition? Are you with me? So let's just look for a minute at just a few of the scriptures in chapter 5, um, verse 17. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace. Everybody say the abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness. Everybody say the gift of righteousness. Will reign in life through one Christ Jesus. Verse 20. The law came so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death... Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, unfortunately, we are hacking this teaching tonight. But by the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 5, he teaches us that we were saved by grace, we were transformed by grace, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, 
And he says that grace is the unfathomable riches of God. How many of you know if I said Bill Johnson was rich in the natural, you'd think he had a lot of money. But in God, if I said Bill Johnson was, was rich in God, the, the measurement, the currency of heaven is grace. Grace isn't just undeserved favor. Grace is the operational power of God. See, grace didn't just give you permission to come in the kingdom. Grace grabbed you. It ripped you out of the hands of the devil. It did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And it pulled you in, out of darkness and into light. It didn't just say, you can come in. It said, you will come in by the power of grace. Are you with me? And Paul makes such a great case for grace in, from chapter 4 on that by the time he gets to chapter the end of chapter 5, he says this. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the point that you would get to, listen, if no one taught you this book, if you've never heard it before, you read it for the first time, and you read from chapter 1 to chapter 5, the conclusion you would actually come to is, we should sin so we could get more grace. So Paul realizes he's just taught people, grace is so amazing, and you get so much more of it when you're in trouble, that we should stay in trouble. We should actually sin so we can get more grace. So in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, how many know there was no chapter? There was no chapter numbers or verse numbers when Paul wrote this letter. It's one continuous thought. So here's what he says. What shall we say then? Are we should continue to sin so grace may increase? In other words, he realizes, I just made such a great point of grace. I made people want to go sin so they can get some more. So he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace would increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? <laughs> Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in what? Newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, everybody say old self, old self. was, everybody say was, was, crucified, say crucified, with him. Did you get that? In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Say that, that our body of sin might be done away with. So we are no longer slaves, come on, to sin. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. How many of you know grace didn't just forgive you? Grace gave you the power over sin. How many understand you don't have to sin anymore because you're not a sinner anymore? You used to be a sinner. How many know before you met Jesus, before you received Jesus, you were a sinner? How many know before Christ died, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? The point Paul's making is before you deserved it, he died for you. How many know before you deserved it, Christ died for you? The point is you do now. You didn't even get that. I'm saying before you deserved it, Christ died for you. The big point is... Before you ever deserved it, before you were righteous, he died for you. But the point is, after he died for you, became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How many know, not only are you not a sinner, you're actually the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not even your nature to sin anymore. 
There's a river that runs through your soul, it runs towards the throne. If you don't paddle, you end up at God's house. You have to try to sin. You're saying, I can't sin? No, you can sin, it still works. Anybody tried? Well, how can I, be, how can I sin and not be a sinner? Adam and Eve sin without being a sinner. Well, how do you know that? Because when God created everything, he looked at them and he said it was what? Very good. How many know if they were sinners? He couldn't have looked on sin and said it was very good. So they did the wrong thing with the right heart. No, no. They did the wrong thing when they did not have a sinful nature. And so can you. It's stupid. But you can do it. Just try it once, just to make sure it's still working. That's a joke. Chapter 7. So now, so Romans 5. You have grace that overcomes sin. Chapter 6. You shouldn't sin, so grace will abound, because you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. How many understand when you got baptized, baptism is a prophetic act. Do you understand that? Baptism, you know what a prophetic act is? A, a symbolic act is an act that reminds you of something. When they crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites, when they crossed the Jordan River, they set up rocks. Remember this? Stones. They go, why are we setting up stones? So your sons will say, why did you set up stones? <laughs> it, it's, 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 a, it's a conversation piece. So that you can tell your sons about the things that happen, right? But how many understand that baptism is not a symbolic act? It's a prophetic act. Do you remember when Nahum the leper came to Elisha's house and Elisha told, actually it was his servant Gehazi, told Naaman, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and your leprosy will be gone. Do you remember that? How many know there was no magic in the water? Physical obedience brought spiritual release. When he dipped the seventh time in the water, it wasn't magic. But how many know it was a prophetic act? He was being cleaned by the water. There was nothing magic about the water. What was, if you will, magic is that he obeyed God and that prophetic act made him clean. How many understand that when we put you in the baptismal tank, how many of you have been here for baptism? Oh, this is one of the best nights you'll see when we do baptism. People, you talk about drunken in the tub. <laughs> we'll put you butt under there and you get up, man. You're just like, what happened to me? Two parts to the prophetic act. The first part, Romans 6, is that we put you under the water. And Romans 6 says when we put you under the water, it's, it, it, it's the prophetic part of you are crucified with Christ. How many understand that when we put you under the water, your old man's dead? But the most powerful part of baptism is when we take you out. Because how many understand that if we're crucified with him, then surely we shall be raised with him in newness of life. And suddenly, their new man, the new woman, comes out of the tank. Why? Because baptism is not a symbolic act. It's a prophetic act. And what does it do? It releases grace on you to no longer be a sinner. Sinner, sin is no longer your master. So Romans chapter 7 begins like this. Or you, do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, first of all, this is talking about the law, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, which most people in here would not be an expert in the law. But Paul is writing to this Jewish Romans who would understand the law. And he's explaining to them this concept, this idea that the old man's dead and the new man's alive and that they're no longer a slave to sin. So he says to the people, okay, I'm writing to you folks who know the law. Are you with me? And he says, 
the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, why is Paul's first point to people who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction, has power over you as long as you live? Why did he just say that? Because in Romans 6, the previous chapter, he just said, you're dead. The law has jurisdiction over you as long as you are alive. But guess what? You're dead. And his point is that the law no longer has jurisdiction over you because it only has a jurisdiction over live people and you're a dead person. You died to self and now you live for Christ. Are you with me? That's all right. I brought my own encouragement. <laughs> and now he goes on to share an example for them, for the people who understand the law. For the married woman is bound by, her, by law to her husband while he's, alive, by, while he's living. But if her husband dies... She's released from the law concerning her husband. So if she, while her husband is living, is joined to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might break, bring, fruit, bring forth fruit to God. For while you were in the flesh, sinful passions... Uh, it, sinful, I'm sorry, while you were in the flesh, sinful, you were, it was sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they were at work in the members of your body. Okay, here's the illustration he gives. For everybody who knows the law of Moses, if you divorced a man, a woman divorced a man, and then she marries another man, according to the law of Moses, while she's married to this other man, she's an, called an adulterer. But if the first man that she was married to dies, now how many know she hasn't done anything different? She divorced one man and she married another one. Are you with me? So according to the law of Moses, she's an adulterer. Now the first husband croaks. She hasn't done anything. But now she's no longer an adulterer. Did she do anything? No. And his point to the people who understand the law is, when you receive Jesus Christ, you were married to Mr. Law, but Mr. Law croaked. You didn't do anything. He did it. Now you're married to Mr. Grace. Are you with me? So Mr. Law's dead, and you're married to Mr. Grace, therefore, you're no longer, quote, an adulterer. Are you with me? You're no longer a sinner. Why? Not because you did anything, but because he killed the old man. And the old man was under the law, but the new man is in grace. So then Paul talks about his struggle, and he's talking about the point, his point in chapter 7 is, when he was a Pharisee, he was, how many know, that he was an expert in the law. And here's his point in chapter 7. The more I knew, the more I read the law, the more I understood the law, the greater, the greater sin I was, the greater sinner I was, the more sin in my life was exposed. In other words, this is the point. How many understand that you can't sin by accident? If, if, I, if I was walking behind your car and you accidentally drove over me and broke my legs, how many know that's called an accident? It's not called a purpose. <laughs> you might have to say you're sorry, but how many know you don't owe heaven anything because you didn't do it on purpose? On the other hand, if you see me on the sidewalk and you're mad at me, and you drive up on the sidewalk and break both my legs, how many know that's sin? Because you did it on purpose. Are you following me? So Paul says, when the when law came, when the law came, sin increased. 
Why did sin increase? Not because you were doing anything different, but now you knew it was wrong and did it anyway. Are you with me? So here's the problem with the law. The more Paul learned about the law, the more aware he was that he was doing wrong, but the law gave him no power to change. The law said, you're doing it wrong, but the law gave you no grace to change. So by the time he gets to the end of chapter 7, he says, a wretched man, I, now I'm aware that sin is actually ruling me. The very one who's studying the law and trying to be free has realized every time I learn, you know, 217 laws in the Old Testament, every time I learn another law, I realize I'm breaking that one too, and I'm breaking that one too, and I'm breaking that one too. And now the law tells him, here's all the things you did wrong, Paul. But he goes, but he gave me no power to change. That's the end of chapter 7. He says it in present tense because he's making you feel the pain of what it's like to know the Old Testament and have no grace to change. By the time he gets to chapter 8, he says this, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And he begins to tell us that we are no longer under sin. Sin is no longer our master because the Lord came in and what the law couldn't do, the law could tell us what we, what we did was right and what we could do was wrong. But the law could not change a heart. And he says, what the law couldn't do, weak as it was, Jesus did when he sent his spirit and he delivered us from the power of sin. Are you with me? Why am I telling you all that? Because if you believe that you're in a war with your old man, you can't even engage the right enemy. You're going through spiritual warfare and you think that you're in a war to, of sanctification. And actually, that's not a war of sanctification. That's a war with the devil. Are you with me? Good point, Chris. Thank you for that. Turn to chapter 6 of Ephesians. Verse 10. Now, this is really cool. In chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians, Paul says that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. And the Lord has put everything under our feet. How many of you love those verses? We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. And so, the first two verses, we're seated in heavenly places. In chapter 3 and 4, Paul talks about that we have to walk out the high call that we have in Christ Jesus. So we sit in heavenly places, and we, it's a season in life. You ever been in a season in life when you don't do anything, God does it all? Yeah. It's just a great season. Like, you just sit and like, what are you doing, man? We're just sipping suds in the palace, hanging out with the king, and, you know, having fun. And you do that for a first couple years of your Christian walk, and the Lord's like, what are you doing? We're like, it's all about grace. And all of a sudden, it becomes like all about works, right? I don't mean, you know what I'm trying to say. And all of a sudden, the Lord's like, get walking. <laughs> and then I have to walk out the high call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus. And the emphasis is no longer on his works, but his grace working through me to do works for him. And the next part of my life becomes all about knowing how grace works through me and not just in me. And by the time Paul gets to chapter 6, he writes this, Finally be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How many know we had the sitting season? It's all about God. We had the walking season. It's all about God's grace in me, learning how to take responsibility for my life. And in chapter 6, it's the standing season. Have you ever heard the saying, two steps forward and one step back? God's idea is five steps forward, and when you go through a hard time, stay standing. Don't back up. Are you with me? So we go through these seasons, and by the way, warfare should be a season. <laughs> a season is not forever. Psalms 23. Anybody memorize Psalms 23? That was the very first chapter I ever memorized in the Bible. I love it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not... Anybody else memorize it in King James? I shall not want. He makes me lie down. Green pastures. He's, he... <laughs> Forget it. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. What's the next verse say? In the King James. Yay! Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's the point. You lie down in green pastures. You sit by still waters. But how many know you don't camp in the shadow. You don't camp in the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> you walk through the valley. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. How many know I don't set up camp there. I don't like, oh, I think I'll build a house here. We could do this for a lifetime. How many know warfare is supposed to be a season? <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for that. Some people make it a lifetime. You know, if you focus on the devil you end up with the big devil and a little God. Some people are hyper devil conscious. I was hyper devil conscious for the, probably the first seven or eight years of my Christian walk. And how many you know, if you look for the devil, you'll find him everywhere. Okay, let's finish this part. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Everybody say, evil day. Amen. Having done everything to stand, stand firm. Now, I have to admit, I don't like the evil day. I don't like the standing seasons. I like the sitting seasons. I like the walking seasons. But how many know sometimes you don't get to choose? Yeah. You don't get to choose what happens to you, but you do get to choose what happens in you. Yeah. And so the goal of these struggle days is for you to stand firm, not lose ground, and resist. Now, I want to remind you that you were born to win. 
How many know that Romans 1 says God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are clearly clearly seen in what God made? In other words, you can look at what God created, and it tells you about God. How many know you're one of God's creations? You have feet that only go forward. You have arms and, and hands that they only work this way. You have to get someone else even to scratch your back. You got eyes that only look forward. You know, I mean, how many of you know God could have put a backup eye in there? I mean, anybody's seen fish? I mean, God's got. How, how about God's creatures? You know, it talks about these God's pets, and they have eyes all around and inside. You won't even need a doctor. Like you, you have eyes inside. How many of you know? I don't know what that means. That was very deep. But read it. The Book of Revelation says that. The creatures have eyes all around and inside. How many know God could give you a backup eye? I'm simply saying, you have eyes that only look forward. You don't have an eye in the back. You have feet that only go forward. I mean, you can go like this, but it's, it's not easy. And you can't even do warfare this way. The point is, is that your body is... <laughs> It's not just the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's actually a prophetic declaration that you were born to only go forward. You were not born to retreat. You weren't born to back up. In fact, it's the Lord who's your rear guard. He's protecting your butt. When you've done everything to stand, stand firm. It's interesting. Uh, turn to the Romans... I'm sorry... Ephesians 6, 12, there's several different translations that translate this word quite differently. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, what does your Bible say? Some say principalities, some say rulers. The actual word, um, I can't pronounce the word, but the actual Greek word means origin. Now, let me read you where this word shows up again. And you're going to say, what are you talking about? Philippians 4, 15, Paul writes, for you yourself also know, Philippians, that at, my, the, at the first preaching of the gospel, the words first preaching, those two words first preaching, are actually the one Greek word, origin. Okay, you're like, okay, what are you talking about? Paul is talking about dimensions of wickedness. Are you following me? And he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's, it's against, and then he begins to talk about six dimensions of different types of demons that actually war against your soul. And by the way, I don't think demons are actually warring against Christians. I think principalities are. I think it's world forces of darkness are actually, the world forces of darkness are, are the types of spirits that, that resist world changers. I think demons mess with non-Christians. But I think world forces of darkness mess with world changers. Are you with me? So Paul is not talking about low-level demons here. He's talking about forces that resist history makers. This first one is, in my, in my translation, New American Standard, is called rulers, but it's actually the word origin. And, it, and Paul uses this word origin when he says to the Philippians, when I first preached to you. In other words, when I laid the foundations of the origins of God. Are you with me? Origin is actually a spirit that actually questions the origins of God's nature. For instance, evolution is questioning the origin of man. Homosexuality is questioning the sexuality of man. 
I could go on and on. What I'm getting at is, you think things like, where does, when is a baby a baby? In our country, in many states, you can still abort a third trimester fetus. Think about this now. Now we have three-dimensional sonograms. People, scientists, who want to tell us about the origins of mankind are looking at a fetus in the third trimester on a, thir- on a 3D sonogram and are telling you that that's not human. That the laws of man in America, our constitution protects only humans, and that's not a human. Therefore, we should not protect that because that's not a baby, that's a fetus. Now, if you give birth to it, it's a baby. But if you abort it, it's a fetus. Now, how many of you know that some of the brightest minds in America believe that's not a baby? Including the Supreme Court. Now, when you engage people who are brilliant, and you would trust them, probably, you would, abortion doctor, you might trust that doctor with, you know, operating on another part of your body. And that brilliant doctor suddenly engages in a conversation that is not logical with the same confidence that he would talk to you about your appendix needing to be taken out. And you're like, okay, see that sonogram right there? That looks like a baby. No, that's a fetus. Do you know why what seems illogical to you seems logical to them? Because we're not talking about logic and reason. We're talking about a spirit called origin that actually re-preaches a different gospel and convinces really, really smart people. I'm not talking about the fact that they're stupid. Really smart people think really dumb things in the name of science, not because they're stupid, but because they're under a spirit, a spell called origin. A boy with a penis, with a DNA that says he's a boy, thinks he's a girl. I understand we have to have compassion for people, counseled many people like that. No, no, no condemnation and no guilt. But now we say, well, that's logical. The reason why we think that's logical is because of a spirit called origin. Origin makes illogical things seem really logical to very intelligent people. A person standing in front of a mirror at 70 pounds a full-grown 30-year-old woman, 70 pounds in front of the mirror, looks into the mirror, I've had this happen in my office, and swears she's overweight. Swears she's overweight. She's not lying. She's a perfect track record of being honest. But she looks at the mirror, I'm looking at the same mirror, and swears she's overweight. You know why? Because of origin. Origin has twisted what she sees. What you see isn't what she sees. And what totally seems illogical from the outside feels totally logical. Not because people are stupid and not because they're evil, but because they're under a spirit that's called origin that has re-preached creation. And you cannot preach people. No, let me say it different. You cannot rationalize people into logic and reason. Follow me. 
I'm, I'm going to finish. I'm, I'm about to say something different than you might think I'm saying. Who are under that spirit in that particular place. Now, you can rationalize with them in every other place where that spirit's not influencing them. You can have a very rational argument with them. You can have very rational dialogue. In fact, you, you, you almost think, well, this person's so rational that certainly they must have facts for this. They don't have facts for that. They have a spirit that's actually re-presenting, representing a different story of creation. And I want to be honest. It feels really real. So of course they would defend it to the death because they're very intelligent, wise people, and many of them are very integrous people who want to do the right thing. So we don't like condemn them or those terrible people, they're so crazy. No, it's, I'm saying, if you've ever been under the influence of a spirit, and I just told you that I was for three and a half years, things that seem really illogical to other people seem very logical to you. And you can explain them to other people and people will shake their heads and, you, and when you come out of it and you look back, you're like, oh my God, what did I believe? But you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels very logical. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We have about 10 more minutes, so I'm going to take about 10 more minutes. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But listen to this. But they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5. We are destroying speculations... And every lofty thing is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every captive, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm going to read it one more time, slowly. Just follow along with me. If you have your Bible, it's really good for you to see it and hear it. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Remember, we took the first half hour to talk about that. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Okay, so Paul's talking about destroying fortresses. But where are the fortresses in this verse he's talking about? For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Did you notice that the fortresses he's talking about in this case, and I understand there are other verses, but in this case he's not talking about the fortresses out there. He's talking about the fortresses in here. And he says they're made up of bricks called thoughts, speculations, and lofty things are the building materials of the fortresses that we build inside of us. Are you with me? He's saying thoughts, speculations, and lofty things are like bricks. It's a metaphor. They're like bricks, bricks or blocks or, or building material that actually build the fortress inside of you. How do you know if you have a fortress inside of you? Oh, I can tell you, you always protect the fortress you have inside of you. When somebody says to you, you look nice in that dress, and you hear, he's trying to seduce me, da da da, what happened? Ah, something built a fortress in you, and someone says one thing, but you hear another. And you can't convince people that, are, that have built a fortress that what you said is not what they heard. 
or what you thought you said is not what they heard. You get the idea. It gets twisted in turn, and they begin to see people, black people, white people, men, women. There's something about a certain kind of person. They've built a fortress against them. They have a case against them. And now it's not only the person who raped them, but it's everybody that's that nationality or that gender or that whatever. Whatever it is, it just triggers it in them. And suddenly, whoop, force fields up. I'm not even talking to them anymore. They're not talking to me anymore. They're talking to a ghost. Because the fortress is haunted. You ever talk to anyone? You ever have a friend? Maybe it's you. Totally rational people. Everything's good. You have lots of conversations. Maybe you've known them for several years. And all of a sudden you get on a subject and boom! You can see it in their eyes. They ain't talking to you anymore. But they're trying to. You ever have anybody repeat back to you what they think you said when they're angry with you? And you're like, I did not say you like, I wish I had a recorder with me because I said nothing like that. But they're integrous people. That's what they think you said. That is a person who has a fortress. And fortresses are made of thoughts, speculations, and lofty things. Let me just give this to you quickly. We'll start with speculations. What's a speculation? Did God say... Speculation is the big if. Have you ever had someone you love, maybe your husband, your wife, one of your kids, come home? I mean, they're an hour late coming home from school or work or from someplace that you normally expect them. And you start thinking, what if they got abducted by aliens? (laughs) And the alien ate them. And they never find their body. And have you ever, I'm being funny, of course. have Have you ever had your husband come home He's an hour late from coming home, and you start to think, what if you got in a car accident? What if, what if, gosh, what if, what if someone shot him? What if, and you start thinking, have you ever had your husband be late, and you think, wow, boss probably pulled him over and took him out of his job and said, I'm going to make you the CEO of your company. I mean, does, I mean, what I'm getting at is, you ever notice that speculations are always negative? When your son's coming home an hour late, he's an hour late from school, you don't think, I bet the, bet the football coach you know, took him aside and is talking to him about being on the varsity team, even though he's a freshman. You don't think like that. You don't think, oh, I'm so excited that he's late. You think, gosh, I hope he didn't get abducted by aliens. And you start making up stories. Anybody ever made up a story? Come on, help me. You people watching by Bethel TV need to text in right now and tell these people they're not telling the truth. I remember years ago, it was, uh, it was around Christmas time, and Kathy, when we lived in Weaverville, Kathy would go down with the girls on, on Saturday. It was their shopping day. And so it was a kind of a big deal. We didn't have a lot of shopping centers, and we didn't have any shopping center really in Weaverville. Wait, let me just put it honestly. We didn't have many stores in Weaverville <laughs> that were open. And so the girls would come down. Saturday was typically a big shopping day, and we had this big white car, big tuna boat, and... and uh, and, and we, had this, uh, we had this rule. We didn't have cell phones in those days, so it's one-hour drive from, uh, from Reading to uh, Weaverville. Uh, almost exactly one hour. And so there was, a, there was a McDonald's on the way, a Burger King on the way to town, out of town with a phone booth there. And what we did all the years our kids were growing up as, as they became teenagers is that we would call when we got to Burger King and say, we'll be home in one hour. And then we could... We, you know, we, if the road was bad or whatever, we'd know if they're beyond an hour to go, maybe they need change, maybe they need help or whatever. And our kids, when our kids started driving, it really helped us to know, hey, we want to know exactly when you leave 
da-da-da. So I, I'm home on a Saturday, and it's around Christmas time, and it's, it's like, you know, it's 6 o'clock. The girls are usually home by 7, and 7 o'clock comes, and they're not here. 8 o'clock comes, they're not home. It's snowing. I'm uh, 9 o'clock, and I am freaking out. I call the Ohio patrolmen, who are they're friends of mine, and, you know, Chris, what's going on? My, my tuna boat, you know? I don't know where my, my wife and kids should have been home two hours ago. I don't know where they are. And so they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put the word out and we'll call you back. And, and, you know, by 9.30, I am freaked out. I am, like, I am already, you know, I'm already working on the funeral plans for my children. <laughs> Hire patrolman calls me and said, we have a white car in the river. Um, we don't know that it's yours, Chris. We don't know that it's yours. But um, we're working on it right now. We'll call you back. And I am like, I am freaked 9.30 comes, 10 o'clock, 10.30, I am pacing the floor, I am freaked out, I'm like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do without my girls, without my, you know, what's going to happen, who's going to feed me, I mean, this is, I don't cook, I should have been more domestic when I, 11 o'clock comes, I am so angry. 11.30 comes. I'm freaked out. I'm calling the high patrolman every half hour. I got the sheriff, my friends, the, the, the sheriff. I got the sheriff looking for these girls. I mean, they're like, hey, Chris, we haven't got the thing out of the, the car out of the river yet. We don't know. Da, da, da. I'll call you as soon as we know. I'm like so freaked out. 11.30 comes. The girls come driving up the driveway. They walk in the house. They're like, hey, you want to see the Christmas gifts we got? I'm like, You know, first you're freaked, and then you're totally angry. Like, and you just figure out, like, if I can stay really angry, I don't, fear, fear, I don't feel fear, right? Now I am, like, amped. I'm like, where have you been? And some Egyptian in there. She's like, it's Christmas time. I'm like, what's that have to do with it? I told you the stores don't close till 10. I said, we will be home after the stores close. And the stores close at 10 during the week before Christmas. And just as she said that, I remember her saying that when she left. <laughs> Come on. I cannot be the only one. I was having visions and dreams. Old men dream dreams. What ifs are never positive? They're never like, oh, it's right before Christmas. Maybe she's buying you a new car. You know, she probably had to fill out all the paperwork. Oh, no, she's dead and buried, and so are the girls. <laughs> Speculations. Lofty thing. You know what a lofty thing is? It's something bigger than God. It can be your rent. Oh, that doesn't happen to me. You ever worry? You ever worry about paying your rent? You know what worry means? Worry means, worry is fear. Right? Is anybody going to argue that point? Worry is fear. Do you know what fear is? Fear is faith in the wrong God. Think about it. If someone says, I'm going to kill you, and they're like a three-year-old, I'm going to kill you. You're like, probably not. Probably not, right? I'm not worried. Why? Because I have faith that he can't do that. Or that God's going to protect me. Or that he's an idiot or all the above. 
It's like those little weenie dogs are whatever. Big German Shepherd comes after me. Might test my faith. What I'm getting at is fear means you have faith that something bad's about to happen. Now, great big guy says, I'm going to kill you. Might change my anxiety level. If I have anxiety, it means, it means I have a manifestation that I believe something bad's going to happen to me. That's a lofty thing. It's the first, and the rent's due on the fifth, and I have no money. No problem yet, right? By the third, I'm anxious. You know what that means? I believe I'm not going to pay the rent. I believe I'm going to be punished. I believe I'm going to be put out. I, now I start to think of how it's going to be living with the homeless people. <laughs> Instead of paying the $50 down I do have, I give it to the mission so they'll treat me nice when I'm there. I'm making up stories about what's going to happen when I fail. Why? Because I have a lofty thing. And a lofty thing is anything that causes me anxiety. Because if it caused me anxiety, it got bigger than God. And the last one that we'll end on tonight is thoughts. Thoughts. I want to say this. Not all the thoughts you have are your own. In fact, what I learned from that man that night and from now much much more study, is this. The way that demons attack you, they don't go, hey, I'm a demon. You're like, I'm a Christian. Out of here. <laughs> See, you have power over all the power of the enemy. How many of you know that you have deutimus, that's the Greek for power, and you have exousia, that mean, that's Greek for authority. You have, the, a sheriff has a gun, he has deutimus, but he has a badge, he has exousia. He has authority and power. The devil has no authority. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew 28. He said, all authority has been given to me. That means the devil has how much? None. And then Jesus said, I'm going to give you power over all the power of the enemy. It means the devil still maintains some power, but you have power over his power. Are you following me? So, the enemy knows that you are more powerful than him. So he needs the element of? Surprise. How does it surprise you? He comes as an angel of light. Or more often, he comes as you. The greatest power he has is when he's imitating you. To you. With your voice. Because you can't fight you. And then he loves to get you in a fight thinking you're fighting your old man. And then he stands by and laughs because you never did engage him. Because he imitated you, and you believe that you're in a war with your old man, and he messes with you for years, and you never engage him, and he laughs all the way to the bank. Question your thoughts. I love it. Bill said, you can't afford to have a thought in your mind that God doesn't have in his. Any thought, these are all Bill, Billings. Any thought in your mind that doesn't inspire hope isn't from God. When you have hopeless thoughts, when you have suicidal thoughts, did you ever notice that Matthew, uh, yes, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, that the devil, remember Jesus, is taken into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. How many know Jesus came into the wilderness led by the Spirit, and he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit? 
How many know the wilderness was only 40 days? It wasn't 40 years. The goal of the wilderness isn't for the devil to beat you. It's for you to beat him. What did the devil say to Jesus? He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. He shows him all. Well, first of all, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. shows him all 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 the kingdoms of the world. says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms, for they have been given to me. But here's the point. Takes him to, oh, he takes him to the pinnacle temple. He says, throw yourself off the pinnacle temple for it is written. And he begins to quote the Bible to him. Psalms 91 was actually first written about Jesus before it was ever written to you. And the devil knew it. And he quotes Psalms 91 to Jesus that the angels will bear Jesus up if he strikes his foot against the stone. And he, he tells Jesus, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. How many know that's the spirit of suicide? You can't be suicidal without an evil spirit because self-preservation is the strongest, strongest thing you have in you. Every animal has it in them. Trap a squirrel and see what happens. <laughs> we live. We, we live in the woods. We know. You take a passive animal and you trap them, and if their life is in danger, they will behave completely differently than their nature. And so will you. Someone tries to take your life, you will definitely fight for your life. So why would you take your own life? Because you're not the one wanting to do that. But here's the deal. The spirit of suicide, it always comes in your voice. I should just take my life. Nobody cares about me. That ain't your voice. Sounds like me. He's playing the recording of you, but it isn't you. And what I'm getting at is if you don't question reality, you can't change it. Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The word truth there, you'll know the truth, it's not logos or rhema. By the way, Bible's very important. But he's not in that verse saying, you'll know the Bible and it will set you free. How many know if that was true, the Pharisees would have been free? The word truth there is the word we get our word reality from. You'll know reality and that will free you. You know why? Because when you know that that voice that's speaking to you is not you, how many understand? Now you can take authority over because you have power over all the power of the enemy. But as long as you think it's your voice, how many know you can't get free because you can't get free from you? Most of warfare is reality. Most of warfare is realizing that ain't the truth because the truth frees me. How do I stay free? Stay in the truth. Listen, easily said, sometimes when you're by the still waters, easy. Right? Everybody's had a still water moment. Love still waters. Oh, I'm reading my Bible. This is my Bible. (laughs) I have what it says I have. I mean, I'm in a Joel Olstein moment. I'm like, I'm with the power of God going on me. I'm saying some positive things to me, and it's all it's easy. And I'm like, this is a Christian life, man. I'm telling you, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Right? You're like, if this is, this is Christianity, I'm liking it. And we go over to the, 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 you know, the green pastures. You're like, and it just keeps getting better. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death and you wish you would have studied a little more when you buy the green pastures 
a little less television and a little more Bible. You're like, what was that verse? And even the good ones don't seem to be working right now. And even though I walk through the valley, I'm supposed to walk. Come on, Martha, walk. Walk, Martha. I don't get can't Walk, Martha, we're going to die. Right? It feels completely different, right? It feels completely different. So sometimes when you're going through the valley, you have to remind yourself, how I feel isn't how I'm doing. How I'm feeling isn't how I'm doing. Because I'm not led by my soul. I'm led by my spirit. And I don't condemn myself for feeling bad because how many know where that rat hole goes? I'm not going to like, I'm feeling bad, I shouldn't, you know. Pastor Chris says, I'm like, no, 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 listen. Chillax. <laughs> You're feeling bad. Don't feel bad about feeling bad. Just keep walking. What am I going to do? This will end. How do you know that? It all works out for good in the end, so it ain't good, so it must not be the end. What do I do in the meantime? Read Chris's book, Spirit Wars. <laughs> but read while you're walking. Don't stop. Just read while you're walking. In fact, I have to go audio. Get the audio book. Just let me talk to you while you're walking. But don't stop to study. Just keep walking. Are you with me? Stand, let me pray for you all. Say this, I am not, I am not how, I feel. how I feel. Jesus said, Jesus said that, I'm that I'm a victor. I'm not a victim. Not a victim. I, was I was born to win. There will be warfare in my life, in, my life. In, certain in certain seasons. Because I'm worth resisting. I know I'm getting there. I'm just thinking of something else to say. That's... <laughs> but Jesus said, said that I'm going to win. That there's territory to take. That the battle is about taking new territory. About winning. About the kingdom of this world. Becoming the kingdom of our God. And by Jesus, I will win. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing these folks. Hey, if you're going through like the valley, just raise your hand. And if you're watching by Bethel TV, we see you. Kind of. God sees you. If you're in the overflow room, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand high. It's, there's nothing embarrassing about it. Put your hand on the foot. Well, you, know, you won't be able to do that. You're all raising your hand. <laughs> okay, just, I'm just going to pray for you all. Sorry. I didn't know it was going to be like three quarters of the room. Lord, we just release peace on every single person who's going through the valley. And Lord, we know about the valley. Every one of us in this room have experienced the valley. Lord, we pray that you would give them peace and that this would be a short journey and not an extended lifetime. Lord, we pray that you would send the right people to them, that you would protect them at night, that you would talk to them during the day, that you would send your angels to protect them. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with strong people that would remind them that this too shall pass. It came so it could pass. It came to pass. It didn't come to stay. 
Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would, that you would dissolve irrational thoughts. That you would dissolve that you would dissolve knowledge that's been raised up against God. That you would show them the illusion and the lie of the enemy. That, Lord, as they see the truth, that it would dissolve lies. In Jesus' name. How many of you know that if you speak to your molehills, you can make the mountains and your valleys get deeper? So, Lord, we pray that you would give us the right words that would actually cause mountains to go into the sea. That in tough times that you would increase our faith. And that you would put faith-filled people around us. That, Lord, that you would bring people that throw gasoline on the fires of our passion, but they throw water on the fire of our fears. Lord, that other fearful people would not gather around us and speak more fearful thoughts to us, but, Lord, that you would actually deliver us from evil in the name of Jesus. And, Lord, ultimately, that you would make us a great warrior. That we would leave this season, everyone who had their hand up tonight, everyone who was watching by Bethel TV, Lord, that you would make every one of them leave this season in the power of the Spirit. Do you know, I just want to talk to you for a minute, and I'm going to finish praying. Do you know that Jesus never did a recorded miracle until the 40 days of being tempted in the wilderness? It was after the wilderness that Jesus' public ministry started. So let me just finish this prayer. Lord, we pray that every single person who's raised their hand would leave the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and that signs and wonders and miracles would follow them in Jesus' name. And everybody said, I receive that for myself. God bless you who's coming. Thank you so much. Wasn't that awesome? Such a good message from Chris. Well, we're excited to do a fire tunnel tonight. If you're new here, the fire tunnel is the way that we can get our hands on everyone in the room that wants to get prayer. Um, So if we can begin to have our ministry team make your way forward. Um, We're actually going to start with our ministry team and our third year students. And then um, second year, we will let you know if if we end up needing you for the fire tunnel as well. We're going to start with our ministry team and our third years. And so what you're going to want to do, we're going to begin to form a line down this middle aisle. Create two lines down the middle. And we're going to begin to make a tunnel of a prayer line up here. And when you come down the middle aisle, you're going to go through the tunnel of prayer. If we can get some uh, incoming, if you're incoming second year student, we might need a few of you up here if you might want to come. As soon as we get it all organized, we'll uh, 
I know people are still making their way. It's a bit crowded tonight. So ministry team and any uh, interns or incoming second year students, love to help you, have you help pray with us.